0: Welcome to the Making Kids Count podcast brought to you by Kentucky Youth Advocates, where we sit down with policymakers, community leaders, and youth to discuss ideas to make Kentucky the best place to be young. Now here's your host, Terry Brooks.
1: Good morning to everyone. Uh, I think this is our 26th uh, forum and that means that for 25 weeks in a row we've said, Thanks so much for joining us, whether you've been on every one of them or whether this is your first time. So we, we really do appreciate it. Uh, secondly, I have been told by millennial colleagues that vinyl is back so that when I use phrases like records, uh, everybody kind of knows what that is. So when I say that this is going to sound like a broken record, uh, I assume that you'll understand what that means. Uh, My current broken record is that you may have noticed that there is an election coming up and you may have noticed that apparently the election has something to do with breakdowns in COVID relief talks between Congress and the White House. And the message I would give you is that kids and families can't wait for November 3rd. They can't wait for the aftermath of the election, whether it's childcare, family supports, juvenile justice, early childhood, you you name it. There's a lot on the line. And in many, many uh, cases, uh, childcare is immediately what's on my frontal lobe. Uh, If there is not immediate action, we're looking at a disaster, not just a problem a disaster. So everybody on this call uh, has a congressman. If you live in the third district, that congressman is vitally involved in these negotiations and needs to hear from you. Uh, also, we all have two U.S. senators, one of whom uh, you may know is running the Senate. So I would encourage you to reach out. Uh, I am sure that however we do this, there are links that are getting posted as I speak. Uh, in the chat, and so, if you're like, "Oh, yeah, I'm worried, but I don't know what to do, go to those so uh, i don't want to I don't want anyone on the call today to feel like that you're off the hook. Uh, our kids and our families need to hear from you they They need to ensure that your voice is being heard in Washington. The message, folks, is really simple, which is y'all can fight about a million things. But Kentucky families need this relief, and they need it yesterday. So we're counting on you to do that. So uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, our first forum in October. It's not an accident that the focus is on domestic violence, since this is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. If if you're a kid advocate, uh, I would suggest to you that you absolutely cannot talk about any aspect of child well-being. Without understanding the the close correlation in how kids fare and the issue of domestic violence. Uh, for some of you who are are more attuned to the to the broader issues, you understand that many of the issues that we talk about around child abuse, uh, whether it's uh, causal factors, prevention, or systemic solutions, parallel very much, the arena of domestic violence. So there is certainly an impact on kids. There's also probably lessons to be learned around child abuse and domestic abuse and how we can tackle it in a more systemic way. Uh, We've got uh, an all-star panel today, uh, and we've got folks who have uh, voices who are animated by both their head and their heart. Uh, the moderator today is uh, is Courtney Downs and Courtney is so geeked that she has told me that I cannot introduce anyone because she wants to introduce everyone. So the only person I can do is Courtney Downs. So Courtney Downs, take it away.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Terry. Yes, I am very excited. This, this is an issue that I'm extremely passionate about. So um, before we get started though, I want to basically give everybody a heads up that some of the stories and the scenarios that might be shared today could be kind of tough to hear. So please do what you have to do to take care of yourself during and and after the forum. So today we have with us Tashana Brown. She is the director of domestic violence services for the Center for Women and Families. We have Arlene Grillon. She is the director of emergency shelter for the Center for Women and Families. Olivia Spradlin is a Senior Program Specialist with the Kentucky Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And we have Darlene Thomas, who is the Executive Director of Greenhouse 17. So thank you all for joining us. Um, so one of the things that we know um, anecdotally is that there is a, an oversimplification um, and an overgeneralization at times when it comes to domestic violence. So Darlene, I wanna start with you. Can you talk um, about the dynamics that exist in homes where there's domestic
2: violence? Well, we don't have an hour or so. So I try to, <laughs> try to just basically capture it. And, and so the dynamics vary depending on the abuser. And the best thing that we can do as uh, community or experts or people who care for our families is really we have to begin to get, gain an understanding of the abuser. And how the abuser uses different dynamics based on often the vulnerabilities of their survivor, either created by the batter or kind of came into the relationship with because of their own backgrounds and history. So understanding the abusive and abusive personality will help all of us understand what children are dealing with and that survivors dealing with. But outside of the economic, the use of children, you know, basic power and control tactics, where you go, jealousy, name calling, degradations, those types of behaviors that are happening day in and day out. There's also the, um, the way that batterers back up or reinforce their use of violence, uh, their verbal and emotional mental violence. And that's with physical and sexual violence. Um, and that's how they solidify their power and their power over and how survivors move from hope. So in early relationships, survivors have a lot of hope that things will get better, that they'll get back to the way they used to be. But hope uh, fades to fear over a period of time based on that matter. And when hope fades to fear, that's when we see people who feel trapped with no resources. How do you get out? And there's a great risk to their safety and their children's safety, real or perceived, um, that keeps people... Um, in a situation way longer than they may have ever wanted to for fear of whether or not they can do it on their own or get out or whether the batter will let them out and after you've left there's no guarantee that you're safe so as we all know that's a huge risk for survivors um, who are trying to leave or create a plan to leave is what will happen afterwards and we've just seen that this weekend you know this past weekend we had a woman who was in a child who was shot and the mother died. The child has survived, but the other child witnessed, uh, there was two children and then Justin Frankfurt last night, I believe, or the night before, um, a mother was murdered with the child in the home and then he killed himself. So we understand and not to make it, but that's the reality. Every time survivors think about leaving or what those choices and options are, they realize what, what they're up against both with their partner and systemically. So I digress, but thank you.
0: No, of course. Um, Does Arlene, Tashana, Olivia, do you all want to add anything to that?
3: I just want to piggyback on what Darlene said and to mention that, again, this is across the board. You You have that primary, secondary, tertiary people around domestic violence. So it doesn't just affect that particular home. This goes out past what's going on in that home. This is in in our community. This is in our neighborhood. This is happening in our world today. Um, and so I think that it is still that stigma that it doesn't happen to people that look like me. It doesn't happen to people that make the money that I make. It doesn't happen to people that live where I live. Um, and we know that that is definitely not true.
0: Great. And, and that's actually a perfect segue to, to another question that I had. And I was thinking about, um, like the the dynamics of privilege and power in the relationship. So I'll open this up to anyone. Um, can you all maybe expand on that a little bit? Because, I mean, we know that domestic violence happens in all types of families, all types of relationships, and that privilege can, you know, it can be language, it could be, you know, race, income, immigration status, being in a position of, of power professionally. So can can you all maybe expand a little bit on like what privilege and power look like or how they manifest in these relationships?
3: I think it looks like um, not being able to work. So I'm still going to control this situation, which again, when you can't work, um, especially now with this pandemic, a lot of businesses are closing down because we can't access those. And so if I can't go to work, I'm stuck in the home with that abuser. So again, this power and control dynamic it's still there. I can't even get out to go to work. So um, the pandemic has done nothing but make it a lot harder on the individuals that that we work with. And so you still see that uneven dynamic of, I'm still in control of this situation, I'm still in control of you. And even with the resources that are there, like us that's on the panel that do this work, the pandemic has done nothing but hurt us in helping the individuals that seek our services that need our services.
4: My answer concise. But uh,
3: a lot of
4: what we see is power, the, the exertion of power and control over survivors um, is of course, is is at the hands of the perpetrator. But a lot of that is exacerbated by um, cultural and community um, standards and uh, biases. And so um, uh, believing people is critical um, because oftentimes in our society, women continue to be seen as hysterical, as emotional, as um, weak, and that oftentimes those beliefs, those societal beliefs, are are play to an an advantage to the perpetrator to further abuse the survivor. And so um, there are times when um, the survivor very much can't help but believe that because not only is the perpetrator telling them that, but then society continues to tell them that. And so um, it it becomes um, more feasible for that that power and control to just, like, run wild. Um, And... so there's a lot of work that needs to continue to be done on a on a community, social, like everyday level where um, people do unexplainable and unspeakable things and that sometimes like the person on the other end that's telling you that that's happening to them, however they present, like that that is okay for them to present like that. There's no right or wrong way for somebody to experience or feel what it is that's happening to them. And so yeah so I don't want to go off on a tangent but yes <laughs>
0: can go off on
2: tangents it's totally fine um, Darlene were you going to add I was just going to add right on that Arlene, because it triggered something that you said is this really plays out this sense of power and privilege really plays out systemically in the court systems um, especially with child custody cases um, where often the victims are perceived as not capable or not worthy or They're played out to, um, they're just using the system. They're getting protective orders just to be able to get custody of their children. And all this manipulation is really uh, systemically um, kind of transferred onto the survivor that comes from power and privilege as well and perceptions of gender roles and gender expectations. So um, it does a lot of harm for both children and the the survivors.
0: Okay. So... When we have all of all of that going on, if we're thinking about not only the power and control dynamics, but everything that you opened with Darlene about what it's like to just exist in those relationships, we still um, have people who will say, well, why don't you just leave, right? So it kind of goes back to that oversimplification, that that belief, that incorrect belief or assumption that it's the safest thing to do, the easiest thing to do, Um, the most permanent thing that you can do. So I want to start with Arlene, but I want all of you to to jump in um, as well. So as someone who's worked in, you know, in a shelter setting for years, can you talk a little bit about the the real-life decisions and the thought process that's behind actually seeking shelter or otherwise leaving relationships?
4: Sure. Um, I think sometimes people immediately think about – if someone were to leave, like they're going to go into shelter, their shelter is the answer for everyone, and it's not. We could have all the beds in the world, and it's still not going to be the best option for folks. So, um, in terms of like the decision-making process for individuals, as Darlene mentioned, you know whether there's children involved, whether there are pets involved, whether um, someone's immigration status is tied to their perpetrator. Um, Whether there are active CPS cases going on, um, the finance piece is huge. Um, Whether a survivor is allowed to work by their perpetrator or not, doesn't mean they control their own finances. Um, The timing of when they leave, I mean, there's just, there's so many elements to making the decision. Uh, Nobody wants to live in a shelter I don't care how nice it is. It's not home. Um, you're living with uh, several other traumatized people. Um, it's just not it's I mean, it's not anybody's first pick. Um, and at the end of the day, and it doesn't feel or sound good, but they know their home. They know what to expect. Like they can anticipate that however um, dangerous, harmful, unpleasant it may be like they can anticipate what they're going to encounter in that space versus coming into a brand new space, such as a shelter. Um, Yeah. So I would say that I would share that um, there's been an instance where we've had clients who have left and who have, who have left and and still haven't been able to safely leave. We've had um, to share. We've had, a client who recently um, was murdered um, and did all the things that one would imagine that a client should do. Was here, did the work, did the groups. Um, and at the end of the day, all this work that this individual still did not keep them safe because they got housing, they they had a job and their perpetrator was still walking the streets. And unfortunately um, and quite tragically took life and so there's it it, as darlene said it's like you decide to leave you do all the things it doesn't the fear doesn't go away again it's not it's not all on one person or one agency or one organization or one entity like it's it's an entirely systemic like issue that needs to be addressed and by a system by a system
1: right
0: thank you and i think it's so important too that you point out that um you can do all the right things but you can never control the abuser you know and like you can kind of even in some ways like you can maybe anticipate some of what they do but at the end of the day it's it's always a wild card essentially um olivia or Tashana, darlene do you guys have thoughts
5: um so to just expand more on what arlene has said it's rough out there making ends meet and going from a two person income household to a one person income household. Um, when the state has, you know, stagnant minimum wages, when we know that, um, just KCADV, like the survivors that we serve, their average annual income is like $7,500. Like, how do you make it on your own with that? Right. Um, we have a need for more affordable housing across the state. Um, Oftentimes for folks to leave an abusive home means they might have to leave their community, which means they might have to go find a job somewhere else, which means they might leave what familial support they do have in that space. Um, It means they might not have reliable transportation, you know, to be able to get to whatever the job is or what childcare is. Um, It means just so many of these access points that, Rebuilding that life is is hard, and there's a lot stacked against them. um I also think about and I think Darlene mentioned something to this effect earlier that one's lethality risk like goes way, way up, right um when when folks start reaching out for help when they start to leave, and that's a real real fear for survivors and one that's incredibly valid i I think I would just
2: add to all of that really quickly because as we think about this framework, sometimes we have this perception or this picture in our head of what a survivor looks like. And so I just really want to clarify, it takes courage to lead a relationship. It takes courage to stay in a relationship. This is not a lack of courage. This is not a lack of wanting to help themselves, wanting to protect their children, wanting things to be okay, doing everything they can do to mitigate and navigate what's happening to them, what, what their children are being exposed to based on the batter's behaviors. But it is courageous. And survivors need a community who understands that it's courageous, number one, and also knows that we need safety wrapped around folks before they're ever going to be able to mitigate or navigate their way out. And then there's still no guarantee. So, you know, a lot of us don't want to venture into anything that doesn't have some guarantees for us. But, but leaving is no guarantee staying has actually more guarantees in some ways um, of what to expect than the believing in the unknown so if we could just wrap ourselves in the fact that survivors are resilient and have courage and so do the children and they are working together as systems trying to figure out how to mitigate what's happening until we can wrap them in enough safety because until the society deems and and decides i guess that survive or that batters should be held accountable um, not a whole lot's more change as far as the plight for survivors. Um, otherwise we wouldn't need room for shelters, right? We could do so many other things. We wouldn't need that.
0: Right. Um, so, and I, I think Darlene, you kind of, you bring up a good point, And I'm thinking about um, the, the folks who are listening in right now. What are, I guess, what are some things that, like, how should people respond? if they know that someone is experiencing domestic violence. I mean, I know we talked more broadly about, you know, systemic reforms and, and, you know, what that could potentially look like, but if you're someone who, um, you know, you suspect that maybe like your neighbor is in an abusive relationship, or if there's a parent at a school where you work, or if it's someone you love, or it's your own child, like what are some things that people should know um, to do to respond positively or to continue to support people who may be in that situation or to help them. That's for any of you.
5: I think Arlene said this earlier um, when she said to believe survivors. And I think so much of it starts there. When someone says like, this is happening to me, believe them, validate what they're telling you, you know, receive that with compassion
3: and kindness I think also, like Darlene and Olivia had just said, like, again, first think about believing them. Then also just maybe that education piece for yourself. Like, what what is domestic violence? What does it look like? Because for us, the, the bottom line is always going to be safety. Safety is the, 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 the number one thing for us. And so you have to think about intervening. Is it safe not only for the person, but is it safe for you? Because again, like we've just been talking about, like that leaving that first 72 hours, that's rough. That's the the toughest time. So think about that safety. What does that look like? You definitely don't want to put the person that you're trying to help in more danger. Because again, it's it's, it's some, as sad as it is, it's some safety in that person staying for them. Um, So I think not only just the believe in them part, but also educating yourself a little bit to, to think about not only their safety, but your safety. So what does it look like? Because it looks totally different from my neighbor versus my employer. You know, like if, if as an employer, would I intervene the same way I would is if, it, if this was my neighbor. Um, so I think just having some little nuggets on what would be the best avenue, because every situation is different. Um, so again, what does that look like for you and the person that you're trying to support?
4: Any others? I would, and I would just simply add um, because I think sometimes when people get information or they educate themselves and they're like really hype about doing the right thing, um, that sometimes they may get frustrated or discouraged or with the individual. Right That person didn't hear my advice, or basically they didn't tell they didn't do what I told them to do, and that that is not anybody's role. Um, that's not even my role, that's why I'm still in this work. Um, so it's your job isn't to tell people what to do. it's let them know that you're here and that you want to support them and whatever way you possibly can whenever they're ready, and that really that individual is the best person to gauge and determine what is best and safe for them, even if it sounds wild to you and a lot of times it does um but that 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 individual is the best person to make that decision and that oftentimes as supportive individuals as stewards of trauma that we need to check ourselves um when we are listening um to individual stories or when we want to be supportive and want to be more involved and so listening and asking what's okay
2: what's not okay um of that person I would add, um, or maybe just to kind of capture what these brilliant women have said, but it would be, you know, make yourself a person who's tellable, you know, make yourself a person who can be approached. That means that you come from this place of uh, dignity and respect for anybody that sits before you, uh, that we understand that intimate partner violence affects all of our lives. And the reason that it is so hard for us as a society to wrap our heads around The complexities is because we all know people, right? We all have people in our lives that we know have harmed and done harm. And they're at our Thanksgiving tables, possibly, or, you know, Christmas dinners or whatever that looks like, or Fourth of July celebrations, whatever it might look like. We have them in our lives and we see them as this type of person who we also know does harm over here. So to wrap that up, it would be to believe them, the safety plan, to reach out, to name it. Don't avoid it. Name it. Survivors need it to be named because survivors minimize in order to cope how bad things are. So being able to name it, but the best gift you have all of us have is to be the type person knowledgeable enough that people will, Feel safe with us to tell their stories, so that we can be a part of the, the guidance and partnership and solutions with survivors.
0: Yeah, I think that's perfectly said. And um, you know, I, I can I can fully understand that for some people, that it can feel almost counterintuitive to support someone who is doing something that you either don't understand or that you don't agree with or that scares you. Um, but I think it's so important for people to remember that abuse really thrives in silence and isolation. And so to your point, Darlene, it is so it is so important for people who are in these relationships to know that you are as readily available to them on their worst day as you are on, on their best day. Um, so thank you for uh, summarizing that. I thought that was pretty perfect. Yeah. Um, I want to go back since we, we do a lot of our work around, um, you know, supporting kids and families. Can, can you all talk just generally about how kids are impacted uh, when there's domestic violence in the home?
4: Adults have a rough, but sometimes I think, uh, or at least I overempathize with kids because they don't get a choice, Right. Whatever the decision is, they have to come, they have to go, they have to stay, whatever it is. And so um, the impacts of children, um, on children, uh, is just that their voices are not oftentimes heard. Um, They're stuck in a really hard place because they may love and wanna be around that, that parent that's causing harm, and so that's confusing. Um, And they also can see that um, the parent that's being harmed is affected and sad. I mean, it all presents differently and it varies, but kids are in a really rough place. And so then that, you know, if they're of school age, that presents sometimes in school in ways that are not productive. And if schools and teachers and um, administrators in schools don't know and understand the implications of, of IPV, then that can cause further trouble for kids in school and then for children that are not in school and are developing that affects sometimes the ways that their development happens it's not to say that they wouldn't but right that trauma impacts causes harm right and so
2: yeah i'd leave it at that you know i would just add to that too um as youth advocates uh it's predominantly on this call uh, book that you should all read is Lundy Bancroft that's L-U-N-D-Y Bancroft the batterer as parents so children are extremely vulnerable because they are exposed to batters and batters behavior staying day out and they are a very important part of the manipulation of the batterer to control um the primary victim right so even if they're secondary even if survivors leave the situation then they end up becoming primary right because they end up um being the pawn between the parents and batterers use the children to uh, minimize the, the, the victim's role um, authority in the home. Uh, often children are elevated. If you look at the hierarchy in a normal traditional home, whatever that looks like, I'm not sure, but you know, typically in a traditional home people would say it would be male, female and children or male partner and then children, whatever that looks like. And then, uh, but in a domestic violence home, it's the batter, it's the children, and it's the victim. And so children are often elevated, which is completely manipulative on behalf of the batter, in order to gain the loyalties they need, which is why children are often very confused in who they relate to and how they identify, because they're elevated into this system of power in order to keep the victim. Uh, the least powerless, you know, the least powerful in the whole family. So the batter uses these children, his children, her children, whatever, as the pawns always to their benefit, um, and that's not even looking at children who are directly affected. That's the indirect impact of the batter. So, Lundy Bancroft.
3: We'll make sure we send that out yeah. <laughs> in our email too. Go ahead, Tashana. That. um as much as we like to think that the kids are not aware, they are. Um, I think sometimes we don't give kids um, the benefit of the doubt for being as smart as they are. Um, and so we may think that as the parent, it was, you know, they were in the other room, they didn't hear it, they didn't see it. And, and again, that's not true. I mean, obviously they witnessed this verbally, sometimes behaviorally, the way that The other parent is acting. And we also know that, like Darlene said in this hierarchy, that the abused parent is going to protect that child. And if that means taking the brunt of that, then that's what they do. So I think that it's also important that the parent knows their children. Um, Again, they are the experts in their lives to have that conversation of, not necessarily of like what's going on, but from a safety standpoint, um, keywords, what, what needs to happen? How do you call the police? How do we, you know, leave if we need to, so that the child has some understanding, but you have to make it to where it's understanding of their level. These are your children. Like, you know, you're not going to have the same kind of conversation with um, a six year old that you would have with a 16 year old. But when, this is going on in the home. There needs to be some recognition of that so that the child kind of like understands because again, that parent, that abusive parent is going to use that child as the pawn. They're going to play any way that, that they can. So when it is comfortable or at a, at, at a certain point, and again, and that's based on the household and the child, like those conversations need to be happening so that everybody can stay safe until the possibility of, of leaving. Very good point. Did
0: anyone else? I don't know if I skipped anybody. Um, yeah, I think, and, and one of the things that came up in the, the comments is, you know, looking at kids kind of like acting out sometimes in like a school setting too. And, and so just being aware that you know, even if you think that the kids aren't aware as, as, as you all have so eloquently said, like even if you think that the kids aren't aware of what's going on, even if they aren't like physically in the room, they are very much aware, they could see the aftermath, they could hear things. Um, I know we've all probably had experiences of, of, you know, hearing about um, the children being the ones to have to call 911 for their parents, or, you know, having like that safety plan around, like how do you get the younger siblings, like the oldest sibling kind of being the one to get the younger siblings to safety somewhere in the house or outside of the house. So, I mean, all of those things and, and understanding that All of those things are very traumatic for kids as well. And as someone who leads our juvenile justice work, I mean, we see so many children who are going into the system who
6: have these long histories
2: of trauma as well. Darlene, were you going to say something else? I just want to say that's why it's so very important that we understand the batterer. Otherwise, we're going to blame the victim. The easy answer is the victim, what they should be doing or not be doing and not protecting their children or should have done more, could have done more. And it, it, it's because we don't understand batters. We're not taking time. We're going to what the easy thing for society to control, and that's victims. But when we know batters, when we know them, then we know that how it plays out for the children and the primary victim is really based on that behavior. And then we can better help and understand the lens of the survivor and the children in these homes. So please take time to learn batters and batters manipulation behaviors.
0: Thanks for that. Um, I want to switch gears now a little bit. And, um, you know, COVID has upended just about everything. Um, And we've seen globally, um, I think, the impact that COVID has had on people who are in abusive relationships. Um, We can start anywhere, maybe start with Olivia, but any one of you can kind of jump in on this. um, How has the pandemic affected the incidence and and the scope of domestic violence, and are there any trends that we've we've been seeing lately?
5: Sure. Um, So domestic violence existed before COVID, right? It's going to be around after COVID too. Um, In terms of, I think, what we're seeing and what is is happening and is that kind of immediate need now is that um, what supports folks had before this that they might have been able to lean on are really kind of evaporating in certain ways. Um, it's harder for people to find safe employment right now. It's harder for people to put food on the table. It's just like that those things that you need to be able to get out of that situation are they're, they're just so much harder to get right now. Um, so we're definitely feeling like that is impacting this. Um, there also is a sense in which isolation is at play here. Um, and that that's making it harder for folks to reach out. Um, I mean, what we're seeing with some of the programs throughout the state is is the impact of COVID on those workers too, right? Um, KCAD has 15 member programs and they have around 400 workers at those programs that are trying to keep folks safe through this and not just in terms of domestic violence, but also in terms of communal living in a global pandemic. And so the balancing of those things and the resources that those programs need to be able to continue to provide services in terms of things like PPE. And um, again, like, you know, we know there's not, there's just not enough resources right now. And so really robustly investing in those, I think would make a difference. Other thoughts, anything to add
0: to that?
2: you know I think the families are under more stress than ever because of the pandemic not that it's not stressful enough to be an intimate partner violence but now you're kind of trapped Um, you're being stalked in your own home because you can't really get out so your phone's being checked your every move you make the typical outlets that survivors have have you know maybe it's a little better now and that might be why we're really seeing increases people reaching out but early on it was eerily quiet because people were you know now we're hearing how trapped they were they couldn't leave the house they couldn't get out you know usually you have at least a soccer game or a baseball game or something your kids are involved in or church on sunday or other things that you go out and have access to other people and the whole world shut down around you in a situation that just gave more authority and power so we just saw increased rates uh, or the level, I think, violence, and Arlene and Tashaun has probably seen that in court too, is the reports of violence are harsher, I guess. And the fact that, you know, it, you know, I maybe lost count, but if we're looking at close to 20 murders in the state of Kentucky just since April, um, when the shutdown, or mid-March or whatever, when the shutdown happened. That's pretty extensive, Um so many barriers as we're trying to mitigate another big barrier was the misinformation. So, you know, people heard that police weren't responding except for emergencies and people heard that police weren't transporting people were hearing that courts are closed. So, but you know, at the bottom of the page, it said, but you could get a protective order when <laughs> I mean, nobody gets to the bottom of a page, which is my fault all the time. I never get to the bottom of an email, um, which is a problem but it becomes a a situation of misinformation of what you can have and how you can get access to things. And, you know, just the isolation exists already, but COVID-19 just added a whole nother layer to that.
5: And Darlene COVID-19 is also happening in in tandem with so many other things like in the world right now too, that really impacts Survivors wanting to seek help and how they can seek help, and where they're seeing as a place where they can even go for help. Um, I think something that we were really seeing even before COVID was that survivors who um, are also immigrants were like, are, you know, over the last year and a half, two years, those numbers in terms of those folks who are seeking help have really just plummeted. And that's scary. Um, And that's kind of due to the political climate that we're living in right now. Um, Even talking about issues around immigration and like Medicaid and COVID and public charge changes. Like it's just survivors are trying to figure out how to reach out in ways that are the least risky to them and how to continue to navigate through their lives in, in ways that you know, based on the expertise they have on their life is the least risky to them. Um, so yeah, that's my, it's that COVID is also happening in this other context of, of things that are really mitigating folks' lives.
4: And I would just add, and it might be just like overstating, but the fact is right that we know and understand that COVID impacts uh, people of color disproportionately and so to add to the racial uprising i mean like whether perpetrators are saying things or people are watching the news like the level of fear and um is just like it's just out of control i mean and so you know to darlene's point about like how we're communicating things and misinformation even if we were to clarify some of that, which would be helpful, like there's still so much just going on that like is, there's no way that people wouldn't be fearful. Um, and so that makes things far more incredibly challenging.
3: Well, I add that um, with this virus, um, it's affecting the way that services are provided. So we are these, you know, service providers, but so it's not only affecting those that seek our services, it's affecting the way that we have to provide the services. Um, So we'll take court, for instance, Um, you know, where we used to could be in court, we can't, Um, depending on that particular judge. um, It it just hasn't allowed for some consistency that we are used to in regards to being service providers and and the way that we provide services for our our clients. Um, And so it definitely... Um, it leaves the, the, the person that's seeking those services feeling a certain kind of way. You know, it's like, you know, I finally come to a point to where I want to file for a protective order. And so where it, an advocate could, could actually walk you through that, not so much in person anymore. It has to be by phone, which takes away from it being some personal support or being able to sit in court with you or be by your side at the hospital. So COVID has not only affected, you know, like our communities, the the world, but it's affecting individuals that seek services around domestic violence and those service providers that are providing that support. Um, and, And then I think just for everybody in general, not to mention all of these things that we have mentioned about being parts of of, of COVID. Mental health has taken its toll on on all of us. And again, so you think about somebody who is um, trying to navigate um, their situation with this, you know, mental health and domestic violence and just trauma on top of trauma. Um, it's definitely has become very, very, very difficult for us to be able to support those seeking services probably the way that we had in the past um, that sometimes feels like, you know, it's it's not the best. When we know in pre-COVID, we would have done things completely different, but some of this is definitely beyond our control in how we provide services. But I think that the fact that we are still providing services is a big deal and people need need to know that we are still here.
0: Thank you. I think that's a really, that's a really important point. And we can, um, I'll do this, this one uh, last question, but I think helping people to understand not only how it's impacted the victims, but then also how it's impacted your ability to provide services and really making sure that people know, like the scope of the services that you provide is, is equally important. So, for each of you, with it being, again, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, um, just I want to, each agency, talk about the work that you do, the services that you provide, if there's, um, if there are any events that are going on that people can engage in this month, or if there are any kind of resources or other information. They already have the the Lundy Bancroft book. That's like their, their first homework assignment. So are there any other resources that you think are important for... Um, people to utilize this month?
2: Um, Well, I'll jump in here. I I think it's really important because KY covers the whole state, right? Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: so it's important that you know your local programs. We all provide the basic services. So we all, there's 15 of us uh, across the state. We all provide shelter. We're all going to courts. We're all, you know, providing some housing support you know, many of us have some emergency financial money in order to just stop fill gap kind of thing. Um, We're all unique too. So it's important that you know your own program versus just what Greenhouse 17 is doing because, you know, that's just affects central Kentucky. Um, Most of us are providing virtual support groups. Most of us are providing virtual ways for people to reach out. Unfortunately, you know, survivors really need to be hugged Survivors really need to, to feel that personal safety as they're trying to figure out whether they can even trust themselves to, make, to, to take these next steps. And that human connection, um, the virtual world takes away from that human connection that survivors, that's what we need along the way. So we all might be a little different in our ability to access these points for survivors, but we're all doing them. Um, So that would be my suggestion is knowing your local programs, calling them, reaching out, finding out exactly how they're doing the services.
5: Absolutely, Darlene. Um, KCDV is the statewide coalition. Um, All those 15 programs are members. Um, We do limited um, housing support services out of our office, but like really if you need someone on the other end of that crisis line and and kind of immediate help, um, the local programs are like the place to go. So knowing your community resources, having those connections is incredibly important. Um, Courtney, in, in light of it being Domestic Violence Awareness Month I and uh, upcoming events, I uh, do want to mention that we have a press conference that's coming up with the governor on October 14th at 11 a.m. It's going to be done through Zoom, um, and that will be the kind of Domestic Violence Awareness Month proclamation um, and all of the commitments to, that go along with that. And we did have a meeting with
2: him this um, about a week or so ago with the governor. And he's been doing a lot to announce to the public, general public, our information and um, and i'm sure the center should probably close with all their events that they're having or whatever but for greenhouse 17 we're all we're doing is we're asking people on the 22nd to wear purple so october 22nd is wear purple and so if you'll just post and tag us or tag your local programs or whatever because the goal is just to saturate in purple on october 22nd so that Community is going where are all these crazy people doing wearing purple and posting it everywhere so that they're sick of us, right? We want people to be sick of hearing back from us. That would be one way to really do that, which could be statewide. Uh, and then Greenhouse 17 is just doing like yoga Fridays because it's so stressful right now. So you can log in and you can do yoga with our yoga instructor um, from your own home if you need to de stress a little bit. And then we're also doing meditation throughout the month. Um, but that's, that's ours. And we do have a purple store for those of you that are liking purple. We do have a purple store where you can buy cool purple stuff, including face masks. Oh, good.
0: Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. And I wore my purple today, but it looks blue. I'm a little annoyed. <laughs> Go ahead, Arlene or Tashana, if you guys want
4: to. I mean, I would echo all that um, Darlene and Olivia said. Yeah. Um, all the member programs are doing different things for the month. And um, one of the things that we're doing is we've asked a lot of businesses and community partners to light up their establishments in purple um, along with on the 22nd, just to again, draw attention. Cause I mean, we've been, a lot of people have been lighting up green, right. For COVID. And so uh, changing up the color, my, uh, the hope is to draw attention. Um, um, there's like stickers and vinyl things and things that are above my head because I don't do the communications. But um, I believe mid-month we have a virtual concert um, for folks to, again, bring awareness. We have local artists that are performing virtually. I have no idea how that works, but it's a thing. Um, Yeah. And, again, just, you know, going, visiting all your member program websites because people are doing stuff throughout. A lot of what we're pushing is self-care just because it is people are exhausted
3: I'll just piggyback on Arlene and say that um, those are the events for um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. But just like Darlene said, in, in general, the center has been open even during the, since the virus started. Um, and we're still providing the services. They may look a little different, but we are still providing services like we had before that. And so we still have the services on top of doing these things for um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And Darlene, I'm so excited to hear about the Yoga Fridays. I'm going to have to log in. <laughs> I'm really excited about that. So <laughs> definitely part of not only some physical health, but mental health for me. Absolutely. So I can be available and present for the individuals that we interact with. So I love it.
5: Tishana, um we have the center here and greenhouse 17 from here, but I also really wanna just lift up that we do have 13 other programs throughout the state that cover the entirety of the state that are all open, that are all receiving survivors right now too. So wherever you are in Kentucky, like there is a program and there is someone.
2: And you can get on the Kentucky Coalition's website and it gives you a state map um, which will give you the phone numbers, everything. It's so easy to pull up really quickly. So if you need to access, just make a phone call, you know, find out what they're doing and how to, how to access it if you need it.
0: Great. And we'll be sure to to send that information out. Um, I just want to say thank you, all of you, not only for being here today, but for all that you do for these families um, that you've done pre-COVID, during COVID, you know, after um, it is greatly appreciate it. And I could talk to you all for another hour. So I'm going to be quiet and let Shannon close us out now. So thank you all.
6: Thanks, Courtney. And again, yes, um, I I echo Courtney's gratitude for you all and the expertise that you bring. And I know that we didn't even like, we we just barely scratched the surface on what you all um, are, are bringing to the table. So we Um, I think would love to continue this conversation um, more so. Um, I have to summarize, and I think we heard a lot of really, really good information. So I'm pulling out four pieces. Um, I think what, uh, what we heard and what we want folks to take away for sure is that we need to believe and hear the survivor and understand they are the expert on their own situation, help them name the abuse, but be there as a support and listen. Um, we also heard that COVID is exacerbating isolation and other barriers to leaving, like getting a job or housing or misinformation about police response, and the way also that services are provided effectively. So it's both impacting survivors and providers. Uh, we also heard and we're, um, we're um, hoping to uh, influence folks on educating themselves, educate yourselves on the, your local program. Um, know what services are out there in your region. And then also on October 22nd, wear your purple, light up purple, purple all over. Um, and then number four is Lundy Bancroft's book, The Batterer as Parent, go check that out. Um, we also want to thank Aetna for their support of today's Advocate Virtual Forum. We really appreciate the support and in um, the virtual forums and, and bringing folks together today. Um, Uh, Just a reminder about um, uh, Children's Advocacy Week and the Children's Advocacy Week survey. Um, The 2021 General Assembly is just around the corner, and Children's Advocacy Week will be February 1st through 5th. Please sign up for that. Um, It's on our website. Um, And we also welcome your input in our planning on that. As far as the look ahead to next week, um, next week we will be discussing policies and um, continue curbing tobacco use among youth. So as always, um, there will be a follow-up email. We'll include a recording of today's forum along with resources discussed today and links to RSVP for next week's forum and Children's Advocacy Week. Again, thank you all so much and have a good rest of your day. Take care of yourselves.
0: Thank you for listening to the Making Kids Count podcast with Terry Brooks. For more information and to listen to more episodes, visit kyyouth.org slash podcast. Kentucky Youth Advocates is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who doesn't accept government money so that we can remain truly independent. To support this podcast and our mission as the independent voice for Kentucky kids, please consider making a gift at kyyouth.org slash donate.